Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, Paul. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks, dear. How are you doing, my friend? I'm very well. It, it, it's a real pleasure having you on today, and um, I hope you don't mind me saying this. It's it's going to be half a century soon. It certainly is. I think I'm just over 18 weeks away. Wow, wow. And it's gone so quickly, would you say? Uh, incredibly so. Yeah, it just seems like, well, in fact, it does just seem like yesterday where 16-year-old Paul, you know, made his debut for Crystal Palace. It's it's a lifetime ago now. Tell me more about that. Well, when I was young, obviously, I was a 70s child, born in 69. And growing up through the 70s and into the 80s, you, we had none of this... Um, you know, wonderful technology or stuff that that we enjoy today, as you know, as a matter of course, and and in many ways, you know, our leisure activities were were just that they were leisure activities. So we'd go out and we'd play. Mm. You know, we didn't have to go on play dates. We could just jump on our bikes and and go. You know, shout to our parents to see you later, and you know, off we'd go and we'd we'd go and meet friends and go down to the park and. Um, football was the game of choice um, every kid that I knew including me wanted to be a professional footballer uh, we played non-stop I played actually more than most I was kind of obsessed a little bit uh, but it was my outlet it was it was um, how I expressed myself I had a lot of energy you know um, I boxed as well um, but um, you only went once or twice a week, whereas the football I could go every day. Mm. So it was a great outlet for me, a great way of expressing myself. And I was actually reasonably good at it. I had some skills. I, I noticed that from an early age. So I grew up wanting to be this professional footballer. And it became, I guess, as the phrase I use these days, my magnificent obsession. Mm. So I obsessed about it. I thought about it all the time. I play acted scenarios in my garden, in the alley, out the back of the house, down the park. Um, I organized my friends into games. You know, I was the one that said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to play defense against attack. I'm going to go in goal. You're going to do this. And and it became, you know, people, uh, my friends and my family just really, I think, got fed up with me doing it in the end. They said, can't you do something else? But to me, this was all there was. Now I understand how, you know, mastery works and how deliberate practice is undertaken to make people better at what they do we understand the science behind that now but back then it was just i just wanted to play it so i this i did all my schooling life from from primary school through senior school you were in south london were you i was in south london yeah so i'm a battersea boy by trade um but actually i went to school in crystal palace um so as i went through school i started um going to now football then wasn't like what it is now Mm. this is we're talking about early 80s so very much pre premier league uh, clubs didn't have academies 
Um, they they didn't have specific coaches. It was a very, very different game, mm. very different style. So, but they did have kind of centers of excellence dotted around the country. So I was going to a Crystal Palace center of excellence one night. I was going to a Wimbledon center of excellence another night. I was going to a Southampton center of excellence another night. And all three clubs were interested in signing me as a schoolboy, first of all, and then an apprentice professional. And I... To be fair, I, I really wanted to go to Southampton because mm. at the time, Peter Shilton, who was the England goalkeeper, was in goal. Mm. And uh, my dad um, said, you know, look, if you go to Southampton, you're going to have to leave home. You're going to have to live in digs. You know, you'll be on your own. Um, you know, there's a lot of downtime as a footballer, et cetera, et cetera. So why don't you pick Palace or Wimbledon? They're much closer. You can stay at home. It will be easier. I can run you around. It's no trouble. So in the end, I decided on Crystal Palace. Um, only because I had played more schoolboy games for them, so mm. so I, I knew the players. And I'd actually uh, had been granted one day off a week from school in my exam year, crazily enough, to go and train with Crystal Palace, the actual first team and reserve teams. So I was taking a Thursday, I think it was, off of school and going to the training ground in Mitcham and actually being a professional footballer, if you like. This when was O-levels, was it? This is when I was taking my O-levels, yeah. So so um, I'm not sure how Palace, my father and, and my parents actually, and, and, and the school came to that arrangement. But but it worked. You know, I, I was offered apprentice professional terms. I took them. And so I became that footballer. I, you know, I became that 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 16-year-old who actually was living the dream, you know. And, and, and I progressed rapidly. I was given a pro contract after a year. Um, I was training with the first team in pre-season, playing, playing first team games. You know, um, it was going really, really well. And then I did what happens to quite a lot of young kids when they play a lot of sport. I got an injury. And um, what, what, what did they see in you that they gave you a contract so quickly? Um, I think it was a couple of things. One, I, I, I I'm not going to say I was the best goalkeeper around. I was decent. You know, I was, yeah. I, I was. I would say I was unspectacular. So I was a safe, uh, you know, consistent goalkeeper. Mm. So I had good hands. Uh, back then, we didn't really use our feet as much as, as keepers today do. So, you know, some of your listeners might have heard of the sweeper keeper, where keepers play the ball out with their feet now. Didn't do that in, in when I played. You know, we could still pick the ball up and defenders passed it back to us, for instance. Yeah. So we used our hands a lot more. So... So I had very dependable hands, as they say in the trade. You know, I used to I was quite dominant in the air, so I used to come and catch crosses, and my mm. positioning was very, very good. So I was quite smart, um, and, I, and I'd make. I never was one for really spectacular saves, mm. although there were one or two. But because of my positioning ability and the way I read a game, I was able to get into good positions to make saves look regulation, which, which for me was great because it, you know, it, because they were regulation, I was able to do them time after time after time. So I was quite a dependable goalkeeper, uh, quite strong, quite explosive, um, very fit, uh, confident, um, aggressive. Um, so I think they just saw that in me and saw that I was progressing really fast. Um, I, I, you know, a lot of these kids. Um, when they become footballers, even back then, much more so today, you know, they they allow the ego to drive the desire, if you like. So um, they they believe the hype, and uh, rather than knuckle down and do the work, um, they... is that from the clubs or from the people around them? Or well, the I think it's a com- I, I think it's a combination of of all things. Mm. You know, I read today, funnily enough, 
uh, incredible uh, Chelsea, uh, which is the team I support, supported as a boy, support now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, come on. Have a, um, <laughs> have a player you may know is in the World Cup squad, Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Mm. Undoubtedly a talented player. Spent last year on loan at Crystal Palace. Um, now, I know people in the game still, and I know a little bit about this inside. I won't divulge too much information, but I know he's on a big salary at Chelsea. He's only young. He's getting a lot of money. Um, and the the whisper is that he isn't quite um, prepared to knuckle down and do the work. Mm. Right? Now, I don't know this kid. I don't know if this is true, but this is what I'm told. And I read today that, you know, he wants to now go out on loan again because, um, in the words of his manager, he's not prepared to stay and fight to win his place in the team. And, to, you know, I look at that and I think, well... What is it that that is making his decision for him? Why doesn't he want to say an undoubtedly world class footballer, you know, who's been in the World Cup semi final squad? Why can't he stay and fight for his place? What's going on in his mind? And you know, that's kind of the difference. I never had that mentality. For me, it was all about right. Let's fight for this. Let's yeah. let's prove my worth. Let's just get on with this and do it. This is this is what I've chosen to do. So I'm gonna do it to the best of my ability. So then the in how, how how did the injury happen? I was messing around. It was um, I. I was a goalkeeper, and um, I I was messing around with Ian Wright, who mm. was sent forward at Palace at the time, and uh, he wanted to take some penalties. I said I'd go and goal for them. He was whacking the ball into the back of the net. I was saving a couple. He was scoring some more, and then one came straight at me. Now in those days, the footballs were were a little bit heavier than they are now. And all they did, they didn't move in the air like they they do now, but they used to dip sometimes so if a ball was coming straight at you 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 just didn't know when that dip was going to happen it might not happen it might happen early or in this instance it happened right at the last moment and as I went to catch it in front of my face the ball dipped and caught me on the top of the thumb and exploded the thumb joint on my right hand mm-hmm. um, it basically tore all the ligaments all the tendons dislocated the joint I had to have it surgically rebuilt I had to have pins put in it took me about a year for all the pins to come out and everything to strengthen up again. But, you know, every time the ball hit my hand at the wrong angle, the thumb would dislocate. So I just couldn't play at that level anymore because you have to, you know, you have to train every day. You have to, you know, not have a dislocating joint. Um, So that was the end of it, really. And there was no support structure, so to speak? None whatsoever, no, no. No, it was brutal. It was brutal. And, you know, I saw so many kids um, coming into football from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of areas with all sorts of talent. And for whatever reason, injury, burnout, uh, just didn't make it for whatever reason. They were just tossed aside. It it, it was brutal. It was like I remember uh, being taken into the office by the manager who was Steve Koppel at the time. Mm. And now Koppel, um, it was a nice enough guy. Um, he was my boss. He was quite hard. Um, and he his career had, had been cut short by injury. Mm. So if you would have thought that if anyone understood what it's like to have a long-term injury, it would be Steve Koppel, right? But all the time I was injured, he never said a word to me. He Basically, you were injured, you were out of the equation. You, you know, you might as well have not been there. And um, I remember being taken to the office. I remember he didn't even tell me to sit down. He sat down, I was standing up, and he said... Um, we're not going to renew your contract. Leave your blazer in the dressing room and get your boots and go. That was it. 
it wasn't a thank you. There wasn't like, I'm really sorry, we're going to have to do this. There was nothing. It was just like, your contract's not being renewed. Um, leave your blazer. I remember saying, leave your club blazer and uh, get your boots and your gloves and away you go. What were you thinking then at that moment? Well, I, 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 knew, I knew I couldn't do it anymore because of the severity of the injury. I knew that. Um, and what I was just, I, I don't, I don't really remember what I was actually looking for. I, when he come and got me, and you know, um, you know, I, I, they never call you Paul. You know, um, everyone called me Webby at the time. Mm. So he would come out and go, Webby, I need to see you coming to the office. As in Webby so, hands, you know, you got nice big uh, Webby hands. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, um, but but I knew that this was going to be the conversation. I knew that it wasn't going to be. Um, oh, you know, we're going to give you another year, see if you can. Because I, I knew I'd seen many occasions where kids had just been dismissed. So I knew what was coming. But I kind of thought that, you know, I would have, he would have, you know, said, uh, how are you doing? How's it going? How do you feel about it? I would have thought there'd been a dialogue, right? Mm. And uh, there wasn't. There was just a case, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. Leave your stuff. Go and pick up your shit. Get out. Away you go. And it was before training. I remember it was before a training session. And I, and I remember saying, um, you, what, you want me to go after training today? He said, no, I want you to go now. So I had to go and pick up everything and walk out. All the players were getting changed. I mean, right. that's brutal. That's, that's, that's fucked so, up. Yeah, that's so harsh. Um, and I think that, you know, fortunately, I, I come from a background, you know, the council estate background, quite you know, uh, straight-laced, quite cool it as it is. So I've kind of got that attitude. So I was able to hold my head up and walk out. And, you know, but it was it was, it was was tearing me apart inside. It really was that, that you know, I'd spent my whole life up to that point, you know, up to 19, 20 years old with one goal in mind. And now I was having to walk away from it. I was being told to walk away from it, you know, in no uncertain terms. And there was no... There was no, you know, the FA had no, or the PFA had no real structure in place. There was nothing. You know, I, I got a letter from Alan Smith, who was one of the coaches there, went on to manage Palace, basically saying, you know, really sorry, you had to go, I had to end this way, if I can ever do anything for you, let me know. That was basically the only thing I got from that time. It, it was really, it was an end like that, and that was it. And has that changed since? since uh, you know uh, football. well the football's changed dramatically um as i say a lot of these kids now go into academies mm. at like nine years old so they, they're looked after by the clubs the clubs invest money in them they educate them um but still you know um there it, it can be quite a brutal mm. uh, uh sport in terms of you know when they let players go you know i i know a kid a, a friend of mine's got a a son who's now 14, I think when he was 11, he was at, um, uh, I'm going to say Tottenham. Um, I think Yay. it was Tottenham. Um, and basically, you know, he was quite a late developer. And we're talking about an 11, 12-year-old boy here. And he was quite a late developer. And they effectively turned around to him and said, we don't think you're good enough, you've got to go. We don't want you here anymore. So it's an 11, 12-year-old boy. They're just basically telling him to, to, to go full for multiplying. And he really, really upset him. And, it's taken him, he's now 14, so it's taken him three years. And he's a de- I've seen him play, he's a decent little kid. Um, you know, it's taken him all this time to kind of get back to a place where he's starting to now get the attention of clubs again. And he's shot up and, you know, he's much bigger, he's, he's much more physical. And, you know, we all develop at different rates. Mm. We, you know, and, and, and back then, in the old days when I played, if you like, 
you know, you had really two years, two years between 16 and 18. And if you hadn't developed and they didn't think you were physically strong enough, you were gone. Hmm. You were gone and that was it. And uh, I know so many kids that, that were so talented, but they just weren't physical enough hmm. that were released. If they'd have had sort of the European model where these kids are, you know, kept till 21, you know, and they become men, you know, it would have been so, so very much different. Mm-hmm. Where, where, where did that come from, that, that sort of um, method of, uh, of work for them? As I think it's just football's one of these industries. Even today, um, when you, you know, because um, I went on and, and from, from out of the ashes of that um, despair, I reinvented myself as a strength coach. So mm. I, I did a lot of work with athletes from all different types of sports. And it, football is unique in and of itself it really is a, a completely different sporting industry to anything else and you can work with athletes in cricket in rugby in swimming in in track and field you know in hockey in american football basketball what it doesn't matter football stands on its own completely unique um and it's football is the the mantra of football is We've always done it this way, therefore we're always going to do it that way. Mm. And it took Sky Sports and the money that they brought into the, the industry and, uh, and you know, the, the, the tragedies that happened around Hillsborough and Hazel and all this kind of stuff to really force football to look at itself and change when they didn't really want to. Mm. You know? And it, it's, it's kind of swung, the pendulum has swung the other way. So you had this era of football from, you know, the 1900s all the way through that, that century into about 92, 93 when the Premier League started. Mm. And that's the start of modern football, right? And it's grown since then. And the pendulum's now swung the other way when there's phenomenal amounts of money being thrown at the sport. Players are earning three, four, five hundred thousand pounds a week, plus their sponsorships, plus their image rights. You know, they're in control of the industry for the first time ever, not the employers, it's the employees. It's just out unbelievable how it's changed. Does it help the players? Well, I look at some of them. You know, we, we spoke of Loftus-Cheek earlier, who I know is on a very big salary at Chelsea. and he I mean, was on... For the majority of players, would you say, has it helped them? Um, I mean, looking through all the different leagues and um, and, and levels. Well, I, I think in some circumstances, definitely, because obviously, you know, you can go down the leagues now and whereas years ago you would get players in the top division earning a thousand pound a week and that would be the most they'd get paid. Mm. You know, you get non league now. So mm. so, you know, these these the money does filter down a little bit and you get lesser footballers able to um, you know, earn decent a decent living salary, if you like. Um but but so I think in that regard, yeah, it probably it probably has helped and there are a lot more policies in place, you know, the players get educated through the clubs. Um you you have uh, programs in place should players have to retire through injury and stuff like that. There's a lot more processes in place now where there wasn't. So yeah, I think that um, it's a lot more humane. It's a lot more humane and it's a lot more um, uh, suitable for for those that don't quite make it. Yeah, but for those that do make it, it's it's you know the riches are beyond beyond riches if you like. I mean, we'll come to those because, you know, as, as you said, they, they have other issues, more sort of mind and metaphysical issues yeah. rather than the, the materialistic ones. Um, so strength and, and con- well, strength coach, that was the next yeah, transition it, for you. It was. Um, so, so I did a lot of thinking around about this time, especially when I was injured. 
um, because I knew it was a long-term injury. I know I, I may struggle to get back. So I was having to think about well, what happens if, and um, I've always been interested in performance, right? So physical performance, uh, mental performance, even spiritual performance to, to a degree back then, although it's become a lot more part of me now. But so I was looking at this and, and I, I guess I was fortunate because my cousin was in the 70s British powerlifting champion. Mm. So he was um, he was a bit of a family hero, you know, big, mm. huge guy, long hair, <laughs> tattoos, rode a Harley Davidson, badass, right? <laughs> So when he used to roll up on his Harley, we used to go, "Whoa, it's Kevin," uh, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so so he he, when I realised that I was decent at sport, he was the one I went to see and said, "Okay, what do I need to do in the gym? How can I train to help this?" And you know, he, the advice he gave me back then, I look back now with all my experience and think that's really good advice. Wow. That's really nice. He he was really good. You know, he steered me very very well. So. So I spoke to him after and said, look, you know, um, I really, uh, we were talking and he said, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I want, I like the idea of being involved in coaching somehow. I like the idea of helping. I like the idea of if I can't be a professional athlete, I'd like to help professional athletes in some way. I want to be in that industry. And he said, you know, look, the best thing to do is probably go to America. You know, they have like strength and conditioning coaches there, which they don't have over here, which didn't have a fitness industry over here back then, you know? And, um, he said, you can learn, you can intern, because he trained it all over the States and competed all over the States. He said, you'll get an education and you'll get you know, good grounding and you'll be able to help your athletes and do it that way. And then you'll be able to train as well and do what you really love doing. So, so that's kind of the advice I took and I, I went on this sort of quest to learn um, from those that were, that were doing it in, in America. And, and, and it was a great time. And it, it, was, it was the old school way of doing it. You know, where you turned up and said, right, teach me what you know. And they said, there's a broom, go and sweep the gym. You know, and it was kind of that way. And you say, yeah, fine, go, I can't do it. They, people won't do that now. You know, I, when I had my own facility, um, you know, 10 or so years ago, I had kids come in to do my strength camp for kids. And I used to tell them these stories, you know, that I would sweep up, I'd put the weights away, I'd wipe the, the sweaty gym equipment down, you know, way before I was allowed to, to talk to the coaches about what they were doing. And these kids were like, well, I'd never do that. And I'm like, well, you know, then you're going to have a problem in life because mm. you want it all handed to you. You're not prepared to dig and, and grind and do the work because, mm. you know, it, there isn't a work element to everything. You want to learn something, you want to do something new, you want to change the way you think, you want to change your life, you want to have a new relationship, you want to get fitter. There's a work component to it. Mm. You know, and sometimes that work isn't pretty. Sometimes that work hurts. Sometimes it gets monotonous and dull, but you have to do the work. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. And I think today, I mean, maybe going slightly off topic, but I think that's a huge issue today when we live in this have it now society where everything's available at the click of a button. You know, I want fame. I want it now. I want this. I want it now. I don't want to do the work. I want to compress time. I want it now. You know, it just doesn't work like that. And there's you lots know, you... of um, charlatans and, and people yeah, that just... Yeah, play on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I feel so sorry, you know, in, in the industry I'm in now or in any industry, you know, when you're when you're prey on people's fears around you know around stuff like yeah i understand you're overweight i understand that you're unhealthy i can get you in shape in 12 weeks if you sign up for this five grand program let's go what you're waiting for why don't you want to do it why aren't you serious 
And it's and it's just like, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. Let's just have a minute here, right. you know? Yeah. Um, what what was the um, um, the most boring thing you were forced to do during your um, career as a as a uh, strength coach? You think I, this is just too much for me, even for my consistency and my uh, hard knuckles? Um, wow, good question. Uh, there was quite a bit. I think just uh, you know, clean cleaning the gym and also writing the programs up on the board. So a lot of these strength gyms have big white boards, mm. which is kind of a concept I brought into my gym at the time, and um, uh, when I came back to the UK. And what you used to have to do is to go in in the morning and you have to write up all the programs for the day for all the athletes. And sometimes there'd be like 200 athletes coming in the oh. day. You didn't put up 200 different programs because it, you had you had athletes on certain programs at certain stages of their plan or periodization and you'd write it up on the board. So you'd write 20 or 30 different programs up, but you do that every day, you know, and, and you'd write it up and after you come away from the board, it was slanted and you have to rub it off and write it out again. And, you know, it, it, that was really tedious, it, to be fair. And when did you say enough is enough? I'm... I'm not doing this uh, when I had um, uh, a good knowledge of what I needed to, uh, and then came back to the UK, and I was going backwards and forwards. It wasn't that I was out there all the time, um, and I decided to do it for myself. That was when I thought, right, well, I'm doing this now. You know, I, I'm in someone's gym. I'm I'm delivering workouts. I'm writing programs. I'm getting results. But fundamentally, I'm being paid a wage here. I could be doing this myself, and you know, be the one that that, that earns all the money. So that's basically what drove me to to change that. And and, and what was the trigger for that? Um, do you know what it was? Um, it was a couple of things. It was just I was just. I wasn't. I'd had kids, so I'd had kids quite young. Uh, I wasn't with the, the 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 mother of them anymore, um, but they were they were babies, uh, and I wanted to earn more money, um, so that was one trigger. And the other trigger was I met my then, um, well now my ex-wife because we're divorced sadly. Um, but but when I met Lisa, um, she was very driven. She was you know um, she had a really high-powered job. And I helped her with a couple of health issues she had, you know, hormonal stuff that I was very good at. I was studying a lot of endocrinology at the time because obviously I started doing a lot more fat loss programs. So that was a new thing about, you know, 20 years ago. So um, she kind of, I helped her with a couple of bits and, and she got better quite quickly and said, you know what, you need to do this properly. You need to stop, you know, fucking about. You need to stop playing as a hobby. Get your own facility, even if it's only a small place, and do this full time. So that kind of was was the um, the catalyst for that, if you like. So it's a, the coach having a coach. Yeah, effectively, which which I think is vital, you know. Um, and again, which many coaches this day and age don't see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, all of the billionaires and these sort of commas successful people in the world have coaches. No matter where you are, you need someone else to look. At you from a different perspective yeah and as you say it's perspective right you know how many people are so aware these days that they can objectively sit back and observe what they're doing mm. there's not many right there's just not many people that have that level of awareness so you know why wouldn't you get someone in who 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 can do that objectively and say you know just 
steer this way a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, ministers and presidents and kings and princes all have advisors and and coaches and mentors and people to advise them on what the next step is, and it just makes sense. It makes absolute sense. And well, it makes perfect sense. And and I and I hear you absolutely because I spent some time in Riyadh earlier this year working with some members of the royal family. So I know that people of that that level have coaches. I know that they take on board, um, you know. Um, observations and, and critiques as well. It takes a certain type of person to be able to, to do that, I think. You know, a lot of people don't like to be told they're doing something wrong. They don't like to be mm. criticised, even if it's, you know, constructive. They just don't like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, they, these are people that stagnate and, and have all kinds yeah, of definitely. massive definitely. issues. Who you, was... know, you know, I went, through a, I went through a phase where I used to speak at events when I'd go on stage and ask how many people uh, uh, believed in the power of coaching. And all the hands would go up because generally they were coaches or, or, or speakers or some, people of that ilk. And then I'd, I'd follow that up with how many of you have got coaches currently? And hardly any hands went up. And I said, well, can you see the disconnect here? You know, you all believe in the power of coaching. You sell it every single day and yet you're not prepared to invest in your own coach. What's going on? What's the matter? I mean, why do you think that is? Um, I think because um, – I think it could be a lot of reasons. I think that um, – Speaking from the industries I've worked in and continue to work in these days, a lot of coaches have this insular belief that if they refer clients to other professionals, they lose the client mm. or they lose face in front of this client. So they don't – see, I got taught very early on to have a Rolodex of professionals that I could refer clients to because I was told that, look, specialize in one thing. Be really, really good at one thing. It takes you years to become world class at one thing. So don't try and do multiple things. Become good at one thing. Right? You can branch out into different areas of that. So if I was really, really good at performance and getting people to perform better, right? I could look at endocrinology. I could look at physiology. I could look at nutrition. I could look at recovery. But fundamentally, it was all based around this performance. I'm going to get you to perform better. What most people fail to do now is that they try and be master of all trades to everyone so so when i used to get clients into the gym i would hire a nutritionist even though i knew nutrition right i would hire a nutritionist because it was one less thing i had to worry about i used to hire coaches to, to take clients through warm-ups i used to hire physiotherapists and, and and osteopaths right i had physicians if if client if athletes because i was dealing with a lot of athletes at that time and, and they were looking after themselves like a lot of these track athletes were. If if they got injured, I had physicians I could send them to, surgeons. So go and see this guy, he's the best knee surgeon in Europe. Right? I was never afraid to do that. Mm. But these days, you know, coaches, especially in the fitness industry, especially in the self-help industry, which are two areas that I'm involved in, they, they are very much like, well, I know everything. You don't have to go to anyone else. I'm not going to refer you because I'll lose you. And it's such an... Uh, 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 a back, backwards arts way of looking at things that yeah. actually when you refer to people you say I've got this guy he's brilliant go and see him he'll sort you out they, they endears the client more to you and they realise that you are actually professional and, and I've got their best interest in heart and that's what it is all about at the end of the day yeah yeah who who was your best uh, strength coach in, in the US when you were training who, who, oh. who, who really uh, shone in your eyes and why well I I, I... <laughs> 
Oh, there are a couple of really good ones. I mean, Louis Simmons, uh, who was famous for having Westside Barbell, which in the strength industry is like the mecca of strength in the US, in Columbus, Ohio. Um, he churned out strength athlete after strength athlete after strength athlete. And uh, in them days, if you wanted to get strong, that's where you went and trained. And all the top powerlifters, all the top weightlifters, all the top strength athletes went through his gym. Mm. You know, he was very, very good at, you know, very unorthodox in some ways. Um, complete nutcase. <laughs> but but knows how to get someone strong. If, you, if strength, you know, absolute strength is your thing and you want to get strong, you went and saw Louis. Uh, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't the best at getting people shredded. You know, he was the best at working with health, um, well-being, but you wanted to get strong. That's where you went. There was another guy called Marty Gallagher, who's more of an author now. Um, he also was extremely good in the strength industry, very understated. And one more was Dan John, who was extremely, extremely knowledgeable, was a former track athlete, a field athlete, discus thrower, I think. Um, yeah, he knows his stuff. He really does. And and what what was there about them that really um, shone in your eyes? Um, one, they got results. Yeah. Two, they were able to take very complex science-backed um, uh, issues, uh, protocols, and make them really simple. Mm-hmm. So that kind of stuck with me. That the okay. So when I do my stuff, right? When I research the science. I then make it accessible mm. so that when I coach clients, I'm not saying, oh, you know, um, what we're going to do is we're going to lift your arm up and the coracobrachialis is going to flex your shoulder and blah, 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 blah. You're just not going to do that, right? That's just not what clients want to hear. They just want to hear, right, if we do this, what's going to happen is if you engage these muscles, you're going to feel it there. It's going to hurt after about six reps, but keep going for another couple and we're done, right? They just want to know what's in it for them, really. Mm-hmm. Simple. Yeah, yeah, very. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so after strength, what what happened after that? You well, sort of opened after, your. Um... Yeah, so 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 I came back permanently, if you like, opened my own facility, um, and I had two two things on my mind. Right, one, I wanted to help as many people as I could perform better in every area of their life. Right, so I, I was thinking at that time, um, physically, mentally, emotionally. Right, that was my thought. Pit throw about that. Uh, um, I wanted to have a place, a gym, which had because I had been in some really good gyms that had really good communities in the states. They were like almost like locker room mentality, like that old dressing room thing that I really missed from my football days. I wanted to have that kind of gym, right? So I, I this was the the, the foremost mindset of me. I kind of set it up, and this is what we're going to do. So I, I had all these systems in place which I knew worked because I trained athletes, you know, and athletes are really good um, um, guinea pigs because they'll do anything you say. If you just say, yeah, if you do this, it's going to make you stronger. Right. I mean, I mean, you know, so, so they're really, really good. So I transitioned at that time more away from athletes. I still had athlete days in the gym. I still had athletes coming in, but more and more of the local community were coming in and getting involved and to them win awards for the gym and, and the community and all that sort of thing was, was really pleasing to me. So, so that's kind of where that came from that I wanted to have this place where people wanted to come wanted to feel special and wanted to work and get results because fundamentally I knew that there was this correlation between work and results. Mm. Mm. And then what happened? Well, the gym got really successful. Uh, I had to move to a bigger place. Um, I then started um, 
doing lots more work on myself. I'm, I'm, I've been a big, all throughout my life, I've been a big reader, a big studier, a big self-help junkie. You know, I've, I've because performance was always my thing. I wanted to be the, the the strongest I could be. I wanted to be the most focused I could be. I wanted to be um, pretty much in every area of my life. I wanted to do it properly. I, I, I you know, I, I didn't want to mess around with stuff that didn't have any interest to me. But that thing, those things that had interest to me, I wanted to look into and go deep and go deep and go deep and see where they led me. You know, just an insatiable desire to know things, to understand things. So I started looking more at the metaphysical and spiritual side of stuff around about 15 years ago. I got, I got heavily involved in in a lot of spiritual teaching um, around uh, North America and Europe and, and and speaking at events and stuff around that kind of stuff. Um, what was so the reason that, for that? Well, the reason, there, there were a couple of things. It, so so what happened was when I set up the gym, I was everyone was getting results. However, I was thinking, okay, some people are getting better results than others, hmm. right? Why is that? So I had a good think about it, and and, and I, I was talking to these these people, and you know the, the 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 people that were getting the really good results, and asking them questions about the way they approached things and, and, and what they did in their life that that got them ready to train and all sorts of stuff. And then I'd speak to the ones that weren't quite getting as good results and say, okay, so what are you doing? What's going? And I noticed this this disparity in mindset. Right, that was the first thing. So I started doing a lot of work on mindset um, and. Um, um, changing the way that I spoke, the language I used to, to people. Um, I started to understand a bit more about human behavior and stuff like that and how some people react to certain things and other people react to others. And what happened there, that was when I got my first real spike in results. Mm. So when I introduced um, mindset programs into my training programs, the results went quite high. So I thought, okay, this is really interesting. So I'm going to look more at this. So I was doing a lot more work around mindset and stuff and that went on for a good couple of years and then I started uh, again I was looking at, at the same sort of thing again again it kind of it didn't stagnate but there were certain people that were still getting better results than others and and I wanted to know why and, and effectively it, it, it was a bit deeper so it was the way that they showed up in the world what they believed about themselves yeah. you know the language they used the stories that they tell themselves every single day mm -hmm. so it was a lot more esoteric it was a lot deeper so i started to look into that and you know it it, it got me into um so when I was young at school, the one subject I was really very good at was physics. Mm. I loved physics. I loved that whole thing about how the universe works, and that, that just thrilled me. And so I'd on and off read about quantum physics over the years. And doing this kind of work now, I got more involved in quantum quantum mechanics again and research around that area and why that is. And so I started to bring more lifestyle coaching in it as well. So mm. I called it lifestyle coaching at the time because I didn't want to call it spiritual because I knew there were a few people there that would have – uh, that were uncomfortable around that sort of work. And one of my coaching protocols is meet people where they are. Mm. So you talk to people how they like to be talked to, you treat them how they like to be treated, you meet them where they are, you don't bring them to you, you go to them. Mm. It's a very successful way of coaching. Um, and and so by by starting to delve more into the lifestyle stuff, things, okay, so tell me what your thoughts are around this. Why do you think that? How does that affect you? Mm. Why does that upset you? Why does that trigger you? Why is your ego getting involved? How can we, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and then thinking about how our thoughts can in some way uh, interpret our reality and what we see around us and what we expect of ourselves. 
I was able to get another spike in results. So the two spiking results I really got, well, there were three. There was when I started importing the strength training because no one was really doing strength training for normal people. They were just going to the gym and doing cardio and a little bit of weights. Yes. So when I brought in proper strength training to people, I had, you know, 60-year-old female Asian women who had never trained in their lives deadlifting 100 kilos. <laughs> you know, good technique, good repetitions, you know, and in shape. And, and you know, those that had been diagnosed type 2 diabetics were – you know, their their sugar levels were dropping off, their insulin levels were returning to somewhere near normal, and they were getting healthy, you know. So so that was the first big spike. The second one was with mindset, and the third one was with more self or spirituality, if you like, which I then called lifestyle at the time. Uh, what was it that sort of got the second spike, you know, into mindset? I mean, you said you were interested in that. But what sort well, of, what um, you... well I, I, I was asked actually um, I it was talking to athletes and, and and people in the gym who were asking me questions about my own sport so I would have a lot of kids come in so around about this time I was in my 30s mm. and uh, I was getting kids of 18 19 20 coming I say kids young 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 men and women coming into the gym and we would talk about um, how sport had changed and how I did it and how they do it and they were always asking me, well, why were you so determined? Mm. Why were you so obsessed? Why did you do this? And I was thinking about that quite a lot. And it was always because I had this mindset of, I, I never thought I couldn't do anything. Mm. You know, when I was a young kid, uh, I was called big headed and flash because every time someone asked me something, I say, yeah, I can do that. Mm. Even if I didn't know if I could do it or not, I would just assume I could do it. I never assumed I couldn't do anything. For, to me, that sounds ridiculous. Well, why would you say you can't do it? Mm-hmm. You know, there are people out there doing it, so why can't I do it? I, that, that was kind of the attitude I had from a really young age. And I don't know whether I learned that. I don't know whether that was in built. I don't know whether I'd seen it on a TV program or maybe read it in a book when I was a kid because I used to spend so much time in the library. Mm. I was either playing football or, or, or reading, you know. Uh, and I don't know where that came from, really, but... But that's why I kind of started to look more into that. Okay, so maybe the way I do it isn't the norm. Mm. Maybe the way most people do it is to say, oh, I'm not sure I can do that. Mm. Mm. You know, because I would always question it. Here. You know, I, I, if someone says to me, oh, I don't think I can do that. My first question is, okay, why is that? Mm. Mm. Why do you think you can't do it? Have you tried it before? Have you failed before? Tell me, Tell me about that. You know, because a lot, a lot of times people just make assumptions based on no real relevance or research or, or any real life, you know, um, stuff they've done in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I've never done that before, but I can't do it. I know I can't do it. Well, really? Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so powerful when different generations get together and discuss uh, different ways of working. It, it, it does create that that disruption in our thought processes yeah and you know you i i'm a big believer in that old zen proverb you know that when the student is ready the teacher appears because i i believe that everyone that stands in front of you is both a student and a teacher mm. you know and um you know if someone says something to you that triggers you there's an opportunity for you to grow so this person in front of you that's being obnoxious, that's cut you off at the traffic lights, that's that said something that's, that, that's upset you, um, it, it's not about them. 
mm. right? They're on their journey. They're giving whatever they can give uh, depending on where they are in their life and what they've learned and the lessons that they're going through. But here's the thing. You have that growth opportunity. If you've been triggered by it, if you're triggered by what something someone says, the opportunity is, okay, why is this triggering me? What can I learn from this? So you become the student, mm. right? And then you, you observe it, you deal with, with it, you listen to your inner voice, you formulate a response and you respond in kind, right? You've only got two responses. You can be right or you can be kind. If you try and be right, and you may very well, to your perspective, be right. But what you say then is that, okay, I'm right, you're wrong. So now you create this disparity and then the argument starts. But if you say something in kindness, you people feel validated. Even if they're being obnoxious or a dick, they feel validated. And you've been kind and you've shown that you can grow. And then you become the teacher. Mm. So you've been the student and the teacher at the same time. And I think that's very powerful. Mm. Mm. Definitely. Um, mindset is sort of so big now, something that um, has become mainstream. And as you said, sort of slowly but surely, the sort of the spiritual side of things is will become mainstream as well. Um, yeah, I think so, and I, and I think that it's all connected. I, I think that um, I think the next big thing that people are going to go through. So, so, so we go through phases, like you say, right? Mm. So we we've gone through the fat loss phase in in in, in one industry. We we went through the strength phase where everyone does strength training, and the kettlebells came along, and the Olympic lifting came along, mm. and then mindset came rolling in, didn't it? And you know, everyone's a mindset coach now, and uh, you know, I've 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 coached loads of PTs um, in in lifestyle kind of stuff, and um, they now have reinvented themselves as mindset coaches as well as PT coaches. So whether that's a good or a bad thing, I don't know. But but the next thing that's going to happen, um, I can see it starting already, is this consciousness thing. People are going to start now looking at consciousness and asking, what is consciousness? How does it affect me? How can I use it? How will it in, impact me and the people I'm around and sorts of things? That will be the next big, big thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, um, it's a very big, contentious area. So, what's consciousness for you, uh, Paul? Whoa, that's a really good question. Uh, do you know what I think? We've only got a few minutes, Paul. I yeah, know you... <laughs> I, I know. I mean, I, we could probably do an hour on consciousness alone. You know, consciousness for me is, um, it, it's the universe experiencing itself in different forms mm. right so everything every life force every life form in the universe has a level or a degree of consciousness of awareness mm. right mm. and whether it's um a dog barking at a postman or whether it's two humans discussing the best way to 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 uh, um you know uh, uh, transplant a liver I don't know, but the, the the driver behind it, the observer behind it, the watcher behind it, the the watcher of the thinker of the thoughts is the consciousness experiencing itself. Yeah. Right. So, so the whole for me driver of the universe. So this question is whether is there life anywhere else in the universe? Yes, there is life everywhere because consciousness is the one life. Consciousness is the thing that drives everything, right? And it experiences itself in this instance, in this 3D world, as individual humanness. So, you know, since you're a, a Star Wars fan, it means consciousness is the force. Kind of, yeah. And I think that's where 
because I know George Lucas was really into Zen Buddhism and the uh, Eastern philosophies, I think that's where he picked it from. I think he picked it from, you know, uh, Buddhist scripts, and I think he picked it from the Tao Te Ching and stuff like that. I think that's where he took it from, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a very... Oh, that, that That's why it's very popular, because it, it sort of touches all of us, you know, that sort of special yeah, life force that yeah. we all can relate to. And... Um, I've always been involved in, in spirituality and, and it's because it's a universal it's a universal language you know you don't need Absolutely. to say it, it, no. it it's just there and you can no. feel it yeah you can feel it and you know that you know that when you really connect with someone mm. you don't connect at the level of a human there mm. you're mm. connecting at the level of source energy right mm. and you can call it what you want you can call it consciousness you can call it soul you can call it spirit you can call it god you mm. can call it the Tao. it doesn't you can call matter. it chelsea you can call it chelsea you can call it what you want because <laughs> the words are relevant you know the first verse first sentence of the Tao de ching you know the Tao that can be named is not the Tao. now lao tzu who wrote the Tao de ching apparently or was involved in the Tao de ching the Tao translates as the way Right. So if you're thinking about two and a half, three thousand years ago, Chinese philosophers talking about how the universe works, what's the way it works? Well, if you can name the way you you you're not the way it's nameless, it's formless, it's spirit. Right. So you can't name it. It's boundless. It's infinite. So where are we infinite? We're infinite in our thoughts. Okay, our thoughts are boundless. We can think anything. We can think we're flying. We can think we're spacemen. We can think we've got lightsabers and we're battling Darth Vader, right? We can think boundless and limitless. But here's the thing. What do we do with those thoughts? We put boundaries and limits on them. Mm. I mean, how crazy is that? You have this gift, this power, this connection to the universal unified field of information this quantum field where all possibilities and probabilities exist at once you dip in and out of that 7.8 times a second and take information with you and bring information back and yet you want to limit that how Bonkers. crazy is that and people say you're crazy paul <laughs> i may very well be crazy <laughs> but tell me what i just said doesn't interest you it does, of course it does. Being, being, uh, I was going to say limitless, but then even limitless is is limiting. In what way? Just the word limitless. Well, you, as I say, without Sue saying, you wouldn't be able to put a word on it, right? If you could define mm. it, you're putting a boundary on it. Yeah, I do agree with you, but but you know, think about it this way. But we are conditioned, you know. That's sort of, you know, that's oh, the, uh, you know, that's oh, the underlying just, issue. Yeah. Aren't we just? But, you know, everything you see, everything you interact with in the world of humanity that's been created by us was once a thought. Mm, mm, mm. Someone had a thought. So think about the Wright brothers, mm, mm. right? December the 17th, 1903, mm. Dayton, Ohio, near Kitty Hawk, mm. the first heavy than air powered flight, mm, mm. right? Now, that's the first recorded flight by a heavier-than-air powered aircraft. And that's true in the physical world. Mm. But in the metaphysical world, mm. in the world of the formless, the Wright brothers must have imagined that flight thousands of times mm. because they wouldn't have been able to do it without the thought first. Mm. 
So the thinking of things becomes extremely important. Mm, mm, mm. Right? If you understood that what you think leads to the reality you see in front of you, mm. right? you would get very, very careful about what you thought about. Mm, mm. If you knew that what you said to yourself when you're sitting down in your chair or laying in your bed at night, those words and phrases that you use, and you know, sometimes we speak so badly to ourselves that if we heard anyone else speak like that to us, we'd give them a slap, mm, mm, right? But mm. yet we talk to ourselves like that. Oh, you're useless. What are you doing that for? For fuck's sake. You know, all that kind of stuff. You're fat. You're ugly. You, you know, you're no good. You can't do this. Mm. And we tell ourselves this. And remember, we're dipping in and out of this information field all the time. Mm, mm. We are energy beings, beings of light. We're made of atoms. What do atoms do? Well, electrons, they interact with light. Right? They absorb and reflect light, their energy, they vibrate, they're shimmering, whirling vortexes of energy. That's what you're made up of. That's your true substance. Mm. Right? And this shimmies in and out of this information field and you share information. And if you keep going and say, I'm useless, you keep bringing back uselessness. Mm. So you have to be very, very careful of what you think of. You have to be very, very careful of what you focus on. You have to be very, very careful of what you say and what you write down and how you behave. Mm. It's mm. all part of this grand majesty of consciousness. And if you get it right, then your world starts to change. And you can then discover opportunities that you once thought were shut mm. for you. Mm. And... Um, in terms of opportunities um, did you see your opportunities change once you delved into the world of of the quantum absolutely absolutely um, and um, you, you see, see opportunities are everywhere right we take in something like 400 billion bits of information a second into our subconscious mind but consciously we can only deal with about two million right so there's a huge amount of information coming into our subconscious that we don't see so we miss things because we're focused on the same thing every single day you know we have 60 70 000 thoughts a day 90 percent of them are the same as we had yesterday and what are our thoughts what are our emotions what are our feelings they're echoes of past behaviors and actions and results so we're living in the past we're an artifact of our previous thoughts, our previous feelings, our previous emotions, and we repeat it day after day after day. Well, what does that mean? You're just going to get the same thing. Mm -hmm. You're just going to get the same thing every single day. So until you go back to source and start changing the way you think, start asking yourself different questions, start taking different behaviors and actions, you're just going to get the same thing. No. So going back in yeah. time and changing the way I thought about things was a catalyst mm. to suddenly become more aware and see more of these opportunities. Mm. Suddenly you step back, you become the observer. Instead of the person that's reacting to everything around him and thinks everything's out of control, you step back, you become the seer, the watcher of the thoughts. And then you see the opportunities. But then you have to action them. You see these opportunities and you take action, right? You don't sit back and try and use the law of attraction to bring them to you. That's not how it works. You have to go get them. Mm. Mm. And and when did that happen for you? When did you when did you see that realization happening for you? 
about 10 years ago. Mm. About 10 years ago, I started to get more and more deep into this. I started to see things. See, what happened is um, the gym was running really well, but it was the same thing every day. I was really involved in every aspect of running it. I got too involved, if I'm honest. You know, when you're running a business, you, you, you put in systems and you have people work those systems. What I did, I made that mistake because I was the face of the business, because I was the one that got the really good results. Everyone wanted a bit of me in the gym, so I was there all the time. So I got injured. I uh, I tore a um, – I was messing around. I used to have a boxing ring in the gym as well. I was messing around with some heavyweights young strong fierce heavyweights and we were just having a little spar and one lent on me and as i tried to wriggle out i, I tore my mcl and or partially tore my mcl and uh it was when i was recovering from that operation and i started sitting down and reading because i had to be off the the joint for four weeks i was in a brace it was then i thought you know i'm you know i was 37 38 at the time maybe even closer to 40 and i just thought you know I don't want to be doing this for the next 20 years. Mm. You know, I don't want to be going into the gym. I don't want to be doing the 16 hour days. I don't want to be missing the kids at school. All that kind of thing. And I'm too tired to go out with the wife on a date night. Um, You know, I'm not seeing my family. I'm not seeing my friends. All I do is work, work, work. And you know, um, I need to change. And, and that realization, I, I, I kind of made the decision there that somehow I was going to extract myself from it. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I said to Lisa, you know, that, okay, so this is what I'm, I'm planning on doing. And uh, she said, okay, fine. I, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do. And, uh, so I just, I just had this desire, this thought that this was what was going to happen, that somehow I don't know how I was going to leave that up to the universe. Right, I didn't need to know the how, but I was just going to focus on extracting myself in some way, shape, or form. So I was looking for opportunities to get out of the gym. I spoke to the physio, so I, I ran a physio clinic in there, and the guy that that, that ran it, um, I just spoke to him. He come to see me and have a look at the knee and that kind of thing. And I was just chatting to him about it, and he said, "So what do you think you're going to do?" And I said, "I don't know. I'm just going to try and get out of it somehow. I don't know whether I'm going to have to liquidate the company, or I don't know whether I'm going to have to shut shop or whatever. I, I don't know yet, but." I'm open to all possibilities. And he said, can you give me a week? And I said, yeah, whatever. And he came back a week later and said, right, I'm going to offer you this amount of money for the business. What do you reckon? I said, yeah, fine, let's do it. So he took the business off me, and that's how it worked. And that is when I knew that this – I remember sitting there and thinking, fuck, this shit really works. <laughs> um, and, um, and then on we went from there. So that was when I thought, right, now I'm all in. I'm all in. This is what I'm going to live, breathe, and teach, and boom, away we go. And so that's what's brought me right up to date today. Wow, wow. And and if you can take us through the stages that if someone wants change and because there are a lot of doctors who are listening right now and right. and you know, the whole lives has been a passion or a desire yeah. of becoming doctors and physicians and surgeons right. and they've worked twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years, but they've reached a stage where it's not for them anymore. Right, okay. You know they need to change. They know they need to change. Otherwise, they'll just burn out and wither away and yep. lose their true self. Um, could you sort of take us through that process? And and you know they're, they're people of performance. They're people okay. that have have been high performing professionals and perfectionists all their lives. 
Okay, the first thing I'd have them understand is that, that, that they are truly magnificent individuals who have done an absolutely sterling uh, life's work. You know, um, dedicating your your life in the service of others, I think, is the most altruistic and highest value thing you can do. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. So I, I want to honor them for that. And I want them to honor themselves for that as well. Because I think sometimes when we go through these stages or we start to burn out, we lose sense of that. Mm-hmm. And we, we don't, we're, we're very, very good at not congratulating ourselves, at not patting ourselves on the back. Right. So I'd, I'd like, I always want to take a moment out of my time to have people reflect on that. And secondly, I just get people into a state of quiet reflection. Right. So we need to lose. So so you know what it's like when when people are exposed to lots of stress, when you're exposed to lots of stress, your your prefrontal cortex shuts down. You get flooded in your brain with stress hormones and it shuts down your reasoning, your imagination, your intuition, your wit and all sorts of stuff like that. So your ability to think creatively and make decisions are inhibited by this ancient fight or flight mechanism that's coursing through your your veins right so that's the first thing so we need to get i take people out of that state and get them into a nice relaxed calm state from there i jump forward and i ask the question where do you want to be so if i'm dealing with someone in in a relationship if i'm dealing with someone in a profession if i'm dealing with someone who's a sportsman if i'm dealing with a member of the riyadh royal family the question is where do you want to be and it can be a year away, it can be two years away, it can be 10 years away, it doesn't matter, but where do you want to be? And when you can see that future self, describe it, but describe it in a full-on sensory experience. So tell me what it looks like, tell me what it feels like, tell me what it hears like, what clothes you're wearing, where are you at, who are you with, what does it taste like, what does it smell like? Have that full-blown experience about what it is you want, where you want to be, right? And sometimes this can take two or three sessions to get to. But you need to come out of the state of stress and burnout and and concern and worry, first of all. And from this place of relaxed, um, you know, connection with self, you then decide where it is you want to be. And then what I want you to do is come back to now and then write it out. Because there's power in writing words on a piece of paper. Write that vision out. Get it out on paper in front of you so you can look at it. Work it out. What does it look like? What's this life look like? And then try and take it a stage further. What does that mean you're doing every single day? Mm. What are you doing that's going to take you step to step? Well, I mean, what will happen is you see you'll get this gap. So you'll have this idea, this vision, this mindset of where you're going and where you want to be. And you'll have this area where you are now, mm. right? And there'll be this gap. And the question is, what do you do to fill that gap? So let's give you an example. Let's give you a weight loss example because it's the easiest one we can do. Mm. So let's say you want to lose three stone, right, in, I don't know, let's make it a little bit easier. Let's say you want to lose 30 pounds in three months, Mm. right? So in, in a state of total surrender and allowing, I look at what I look like 30 pounds lighter. I look at what I'm eating. I look at what I, I feel like. I look at how everyone is around me. I get that vision. I get really stoked and turned on by this vision of what it looks like. Okay. Then I bring it back to where I am now with no judgment. I need to know where I am now. Right. So I have this goal, right? 30 pounds, three months. So let's work backwards. So every month I've got to lose 10 pounds, right? 
So every week I've got to lose two and a half pounds, which is about a kilo, right? So that's a kilo a week. So if I look at 30 pounds in three months, I might think, oh, that's quite tough. Mm. If I look at a kilo a week, I'm now thinking, oh, that's not too bad. Mm. I can do that. So what tools do I have to put in place in that gap to guarantee myself a kilo of weight loss every month? Mm. Nutrition, um, hydration, exercise. They're the three that most people pull out, right? Sleep, mm. right? Sleep is vital when you're trying to lose weight, right? The ability to de-stress and recover is another one. Mindset is really very important, right? So now we have seven things we can work on. So if we go deeper, we can certainly find out more stuff if we want. But environment, there's another one. Mm. Environment is everything. The environment you're If you're in an environment that promotes eating crap, get out of that environment. Mm. Clear the cupboards. Buy loads of fruit. Get loads of water. You know, loads of green foods. Mm. Right? Loads of fish in it. Whatever. But look at everything. Then you say, okay, what do I need to fill that gap with? I've got eight things here. Well, seven things. I can put in this gap. Mm-hmm. Right? And you start to put them in and you start to tick them off every day. You don't have to do lots. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be, okay, I'll drink two liters of water a day. I'm going to sleep an extra hour. I'm going to train three times a week. I'm going to eat three, four meals a day and they're all going to be good quality with loads of green food in there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not difficult. It's not difficult. It's not simple because we make it difficult. But it really isn't that difficult. And then you just find a way to make it work. It's it, it it's that daily practice that that you mention a lot. Yeah, yeah. So I'm big on deliberate practice, right? So, so deliberate practice is daily focused practice with intention, right? You can do daily work and not be involved in it, but if you're present, and here's the thing. If you're really present, that work becomes deliberate. And researchers like Anders Ericsson, who's the world's leading expert on uh, expertise, um, has shown conclusively that it's the amount of focused practice you do, not necessarily how long you do it, but how long you can stay focused for whilst doing it, that makes the difference. So if you go to the gym, rather than just smashing through a workout, if you mindfully presently lift every single repetition and now that sounds quite weird what i mean is instead of just throwing the weight around mm-hmm. that you actually take your time when you bring the weight in one way and you take your time when you bring the weight the other and you get in your mind into the muscles that are working and you feel that stretch and you feel that contraction and you do it and you, you really get involved in that it makes a massive difference mm-hmm. massive difference to the results you get I mean, something that's interesting that I just thought of now is, is can you fatigue the focus or is there a way of strengthening that focus? Um, well, it, 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 look, my view on it is this and, and nothing I've done so far in my life has led me to away from this. And, and if it can be proved otherwise, I'm happy to look at it. But for me, everything is practice. Mm-hmm. Everything. Mm-hmm. Everything is a skill. Right? You want to get better at making decisions? Well, guess what you do? You make more decisions. Mm. If you want to get better at speaking, you speak more. If you want to get better at writing, guess what you do? You write more. Mm. Everything is skill-based. The thing with skill is you have – that old saying, practice makes perfect, for me is crap. Mm. What practice does is it makes permanent. Mm. Right. So if you're practicing something and you're practicing it in the wrong way, you make the wrong way permanent, mm. habitual. And it's very, very difficult to unwire those engrams, those neurological engrams, right? So, 
So what you do is you take, and this is where most people fall down, take some instruction. Get someone who knows how to structure the practice or the skill or whatever it is you're doing to show you and coach you or explain to you how to perform this practice perfectly. Mm -hmm. Then build up your tolerance to it because trying to hold focus for three hours a day when you can't for three seconds is very mm -hmm. difficult, right? Mm -hmm. So you build it up bit by bit by bit. But yes, you can improve your ability to do it. You can get better at focus. You can get better at decision making. You can get better at pretty much everything you do should you do it the right way. So we can go on forever, really, if if that's the uh, um, if we well, keep going. I certainly, um, it, it's a really interesting question. Um, we kind of do, you know, if yeah. you think of consciousness as being the one unified field and that we've all got a consciousness, it's the same thing. So it's always there. And, you know, you only got to go back to high school physics, energy can never be created nor destroyed. It just transmits in and out of form to understand that it's always there. It was created in the big bang at that moment of inception. And it's always there. It's infinite. It's everywhere in the same place at the same time. So I guess in that way, definitely. But you know, this, this whole concept around longevity and stuff like that, you know, Certainly, it's an area that's that's gaining interest, shall we say? Mm, mm, mm. Um, if, if if we can go back to the ego, because yeah. that's sort of an interesting topic. You know, we we started off talking about the professional footballers and and how deliberate practice and work is. You know, the ego gets in the way of that, so to speak. Um, yeah, you know, we've all got one. <laughs> um, and you can say think, that again, Paul. I think I think that that where the ego works really, really well. If you think about, if you think about, I spoke about all these four hundred billion bits of information coming into our subconscious mind, and the turmoil internally that must create at mm. some subconscious level that we're unaware of. And I think it's our ego that keeps us away from that. Mm. It's our ego that convinces us that everything's running really smoothly, when in fact it's like a storm in there. Mm. Right, and it's our ego that gets us up and gets us out and does things and express certain things. But I think the problem is, is when we start to accept that our ego is us, mm. right? Mm. That our ego is anything more than just a tool. That we start to have problems. You know, that our true self is one of calm, is one of peace, is one of alignment, is one of connection, mm. right? Is one of service. And then when we start to become attached to stuff. When we start to believe that all this stuff around us and that we own and that we can get is who we are, mm. when we wrap up our identity in that, that's when we have a problem with ego. And I can give you an absolutely stonewall example of that when I stopped playing football. You see, up until the time I had to quit playing football, I was Paul the footballer, Paul the professional goalkeeper. Right? It gave me a degree of celebrity. It gave me more money than any of my friends had. It gave me some fame. It gave me some rather interesting um, experiences with some women who I would probably never have been able to get anywhere near if I had not been Paul the footballer. Here's the thing. When that was taken away from me, mm. I wasn't Paul the footballer anymore. Mm. So my whole world went come crashing down mm. because I associated myself with that ego role, as they say. Mm. right? And when I wasn't it anymore, the question was, well, who am I now? And that's the danger of ego. Mm. 
I think Joseph Campbell speaks about that a lot. You know, Joseph Campbell, who wrote uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces, he was the guy that came up with this concept of the hero's journey mm. that, that, that is the one story, the monomyth, that we go through this journey in life. And everyone goes through the same journey in their own way. You know, the, the, the names and the locations may differ, but the story is the same. And, you know, the story of Harry Potter is a hero's journey. The story of Luke Skywalker is a hero's journey. The story of Anakin Skywalker is a hero's journey. The story of Jesus Christ is a hero's story. Of Muhammad, of, of Buddha, they're all the one story. Right? And we go through these stories multiple times in our life. And, you know, we have to crash and burn. As part of this story, we have to be tested. And when we come back, because the end of the story is you return to whence you started, you know, a great hero's You know, my favorite book, one of my favorite books is The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. And it's a proper hero's journey because he wants his treasure. He goes off to find his treasure. And where does he find his treasure? He finds it when he returns home. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and the, 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 the moral of the story is that the journey is an internal one. Yeah. It's an internal journey, right? And it's and a short book. It's a short book, and it can be a very, short, it can yeah. be a very short journey. It can be, and and you, you know, if 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 you love listening to books, get it on Audible because it's read by Jeremy Irons, and it's absolutely sublime. He does a oh. brilliant job with it. It's really good. I might just get that then. Yeah. Yeah, but that's basically what I try and encourage my clients to go on, their own hero's journey, mm -hmm. right? So we spoke about your, your doctors and your medical professionals because you're suffering from burnout, right? But, you know, understand that the universe is made of two opposing forces, yin and yang, right? The positive and the negative, and they both have to work for the life to work, mm -hmm. right? Look at a battery terminal. You've got a positive mm -hmm. terminal and a negative terminal. Mm -hmm. If you only had a positive terminal, the battery wouldn't work. So life is infused with positive and negative, and that's what makes the hero's journey so wonderful. When you let go of the ego's desire to own everything and take everything so personally, you actually realize that actually it's, life can be fun. It's a game. You can play it however you want, mm. right? And you can change any time you want. You really can. And you can change the way you work in the, in the situation you're in. You can change anything. If you're in a relationship that's failing, you can change it mm. like that, should you choose. You just need to know one or two things, one or two truths. Mm -hmm. um, mm. in, in, in terms of change, because change is very difficult, is it the ego that stops us from changing? Is I think it? the ego. I think fear as well. I, yeah. I, you know... Uh, <sighs> I, people are told from a very early age um, that um, don't do that, you shouldn't do that, you mustn't do that. Mm. And then they're graded at school, we're going to do some exams, we're going to take some SATs exams, you're going to pass or you fail. Mm. And I think it leads us down this road that if I try to do something, there's a risk I can fail. Mm. And I think that lesson is, is, is so, so badly judged. Mm. You know, for me... I spend a lifetime showing people they're not failures, showing people that success and failure are points of view, perspectives, that someone's success is another man's failure, and that those that are successful by any definition of the word have failed probably more times than other people have even tried, and that it's just feedback. You know, if you're overweight, you haven't failed, you're just getting feedback that you're overweight. You know, it's just a measurement, you know, it's metrics. You know, metrics are great, but they're not the be-all and end-all. They're just a measurement. 
you know so so i think that this whole concept around failure and fear and resistance that that resistance that we feel whenever we try and try something new i think the as as i said earlier you know it's practice the only way you get better at dealing with it is to deal with it take yeah. the action mm. once you know we're very very good at building things up in our minds right so so for instance you know we'll have this disagreement with someone and we won't deal with it mm. we won't have that conversation conversation one of the big things about having good relationships is the ability to have difficult conversations when you need to have them from a place of kindness right mm. uh, and we don't, we avoid it because we don't want to be we don't want to feel the pain that we upset someone else or we get upset so we'd rather avoid it but what that does is it makes it bigger in our minds because we, we got we're not like other animals, you know, who have stress and then release the stress. Like if you think of the antelope, you know, eating, grazing, and it sees a cheetah, the only thing on its mind is getting away, mm. right? It's mm. going to go. If it survives, 15 minutes later, it's grazing again. The, 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 the stress is forgotten. Mm. What we do is we, we replay it. We're like the antelope that keeps, oh, my God, I can't believe I only got eaten by that cheetah. What was I thinking? What was I doing? You know, we have these stress all the time. You know, and that's when the problems are caused. And we need to be able to say, well, that's okay. You know, it's fine. Done. The cheat is gone. Let's get eject. Yeah. Press the eject yeah. button. Yeah. And that's why, you know, meditation, that's why being present, that's why mindfulness, that's why, you know, getting out in nature and grounding yourself on the floor, that's why exercise are all such very, very good things to consider doing because they bring you back to self. They bring you back to that place where hmm, the stress is gone. You know? Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 a great fan of the subconscious. I think that's where the magic is, and it's still something that's, um, as you said, fearful or people are reluctant to go into that area. I mean, yeah. you know, doing hypnosis for a few years, it has taught me the uh, the power of the subconscious, for sure, and the power of uh, allowing the ego to do its thing and yet still be present with the ego being there. You know, I, I love um, um, the Bhagavad Gita's explanation of attachment, right? So in the Bhagavad Gita, it speaks of detachment. Uh, uh, detachment is not owning things. Detachment is not having things own you, mm -hmm. right? So you can have a house, you can have a car, you can have a nice clothes. But if you wrap your identity up in having the nicer car than anyone else, if you wrap your identity up in having the bigger house than anyone else, mm -hmm. then you've got an ego problem. Right. Mm. But if you can have a car and just enjoy the car for what it is, a car, mm. right, it's just a car. You know, you're only going to have it for a certain amount of time. Then someone else is going to own it. You're a temporary custodian at best. You're not the owner of anything. You don't own anything. So we have this um, ego, which we are temporary custodians of and we can observe it and enjoy its fruits. Absolutely, yeah. And without being attached to it, you know, you know, if, when you get attached to things being a certain way, as soon as you say certain way, fixed mindset, ego rises, shut down all possible outcomes, problems. Yep, no changes, and then no uh, essentially all the problems that arise in our world is from this, yeah, from this yeah. Uh, mindset, which is quite—it's not a good word. I don't like the word mindset because it just sets you your mind. Yeah. Uh, mind freeing. I don't know, but definitely not mindset. It's yeah. just to uh, 
Uh, well, it's, yeah. again, it's a label, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. just a label. It's just a label, you know. Yeah. And, and given the context of what we're speaking, again, if, if you don't like it, then maybe have a look at what's causing you to not like it. It's just no, I mean, like. I say it because I like to get a, a reaction from people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, see, see, watch them squirm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we can have people squirming. <laughs> we can have them squirming. But yeah, Even no, squirting I, I, as well, I guess. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. You know, and uh, um, you know, it's, it's, we spoke about this, you know, right back earlier on. You know, that the footballers or the football club saying we do it this way because we've always done it this mm. way. Mm. Well, does that mean it's right? Mm. You know, mm. what if it's wrong? What if you've been doing it the wrong way all this time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got so many um, ingrained bad things that you know go on in the medical profession, and it's just it's just ingrained from such a young age, and it just gets perpetuated. And, and particularly if you have parents who are who are doctors, you know, and grandparents who are doctors. I mean, what else do you know? This is the only way doctors work or think, or the ego is in control. And but, but you know, change happens the... slowly. Yeah, change does happen slowly, but it has to happen because, you know, as they say, change is the universal way of expressing itself, right? Everything mm. changes, you know, mm. stars implode and spew out heavier elements and they build planets and eventually lead to life if conditions allow. Yeah, change is everything. So could it, it be not... that, sorry, could, could it be that consciousness is change? That's where we I find th- consciousness. Yeah, I, I think, I think it, you know, consciousness um, is, I think, I what I think is, I'm going to use the G word here, and I don't use it in any religious context, but it, it serves a purpose. So effectively, consciousness is God, right? Mm. So um, consciousness is 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 the um, intelligence of the universe. Mm. So consciousness creates the universe, and then to experience its creation, it has to create itself in many different forms to understand itself and experience itself in different ways so we interact with it in our 3d way seeing what we see but we see in a very narrow spectrum of light a snake interacts with it in a different way sees it in the infrared spectrum so sees it differently so all these creatures across the universe interact with it in a different way to give consciousness and experience of itself that's what I think it's all about. And you see the problem that we have in our experience of that is that we also have an ego, right, that gets in the way of the consciousness expressing itself fully. So we're scared of showing up. We're scared of putting ourselves out there. We're scared of saying, excuse me, I can do this and I can do it really, really well and I'm going to show you how. Mm-hmm. Because people want to stay small. They want to stay insecure. They want to stay fearful. They want to stay unknown. Mm. And I think that's where the problems occur. So, you know, we get hooked up in these pre-programmed messages that we're given from birth that come from our parents and their parents' parents and, and so on and so forth. And they're just perpetuating. You've only got to look at all the troubles around the world, you know, all the disagreements around the world aren't disagreements from today. They're disagreements from years and years mm-hmm. ago, just repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. Mm-hmm. Ego equals stagnation. Absolutely. Consciousness equals change. And growth, yeah, and expression. You know, and it's going to take someone very, very brave, very, very smart to come along and say, enough. Like Paul Webb, Mr. Paul Webb. I'll do it. Good man. I'm not joking, I'll do it. I'll do it in my own little world. I'll do it as big as you want. Cool, cool. And and, and tell us more about, you know, quantum creating and you being a quantum mentor, because that's, 
that's very um that's massive well it, it so so we spoke about the power of coaching so i have a coach my coach when i hired my coach earlier this year um they said that um although you're doing really really well i want you to be think bigger it's time for you to think bigger so the concepts i was teaching people all that we've spoken about today they want me to have them under one brand one name and and just speak from that place all the time because the message i have the concepts i use are very the, the results i'm getting are, are very very valuable so we we because of my understanding of the quantum model of reality because of my love of quantum physics we decided to use quantum in the title so quantum creating is actually um the the program i run mm. um one of the programs i run but the main program i run um creating real magic is a free facebook version of that um, so most people that come into my world come into it via the Facebook group. So it's just a free Facebook challenge, um, which I run once a month, um, for 14 days. And then they get introduced to the way that I, I interact with this quantum field. Um, I have been called many times the quantum mentor. So I use that now. Um, I use that when I, when I introduce myself and stuff. Um, and so it's all based around this understanding that you can use yourself, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your words, your actions to create the life you want, that you can step into your full power with no ego and express yourself fully and impact yourself and the people around you. And that may be one more person, it may be one million more, but if I can help one person, I'd pretty much help everyone. Amazing. I'm uh, letting that sink in. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, if, if if we create the scenario of a middle-aged doctor going through that situation where they can't perform yeah in their lives and right. they, and they're thinking of changing but okay. it's just too difficult for them right what would you advise them what would you say to them well the first thing i'd say is that true mm. is that true is it true that it's too difficult can you think of any doctor who's gone through an awful lot in their lives that have managed to change their life? Or can you think of anyone, any individual in any area that's done it? Because if one person can do it, everyone can do it. Yeah. So, you know, look, I, 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 my coaching, I'm very mindful. I'm very compassionate. I'm very loving. But I call it as it is. Mm. Right. And if someone is going to bullshit me, I will call bullshit. Mm. Right. And I will show anyone who comes to me and says, yeah, it's oh, because look. I understand in the medical profession some of the concerns that, that people go through and some of the working conditions they have and all, all that. I don't know it all, and I don't profess to know it all, but I have family members that are involved in the NHS and I have clients from the NHS, so I understand some of it. But the fact remains that I haven't met anyone yet who decide, and here's the really important distinction, who makes a decision to change who hasn't been able to. No one, right? And if you decide to commit to the process of change and do the work necessary to change, you will change. Mm. 
Because as soon as you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Right? And that used to be spiritual mumbo jumbo, but now that is grounded in quantum theory. Could you tell us more about that? Because I'm intrigued. So um, years and years ago, one of the earliest and most famous quantum experiments was called the double slit experiment, where um, if you fire a, 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 a subatomic particle, in this instance a photon, um, through a slit, um, and behind the slit you have um, photographic paper. As you fire each through the slit, you get a line behind the slit that corresponds with the slit on the photographic paper, right? Yeah. So it's like shooting a bullet through a hole, right? If you've got a slit and you shoot a bullet through it, you'll get a bullet hole on a piece of card behind it, yeah. right? If you have a double slit and you shoot individual uh, photons through the two slits, you get two lines, right? Mm. What that shows you is that you have a particle, right? Mm. That the photon is expressing behavior as a particle, like a bullet, a, a, a piece of matter, mm. right? But what happened was when they went to a double slit, they got a real shock because what they saw was a mishmash of strikes on the photographic paper behind and not the pattern they thought they were going to get. They actually got an interference pattern. And an interference pattern is wave-like. So if you drop a pebble into a pond, you'll see ripples, mm. okay, or wave. If you drop two pebbles in, they will interact with each other and create a sort of a pattern, mm. right? This was the pattern that was happening behind this double slit. So when they were there and observing and thought they were going to get the bullet pattern of two stripes behind the double slits. That's what they got. When they weren't there, they got an interference pattern. And what this showed is that the observer expecting a result gets the result that they expect. And this was the first indi indi indication that what we look at changes what's going on. Okay. It's very famous quantum physics experiment called the double slit experiment. And it's there's been books written about it that explain it much, much better than I can. But fundamentally, what that means is that at quantum level, things are both energy and matter at the same time or at no time after all. Now, here's the thing. You remember that high school model of an atom with all the electrons orbiting mm. around it? Mm. Well, that's the mechanistic Newtonian version of an atom. Mm. An atom actually looks like nothing. There's nothing there mm. because it's things that flip in and out of existence. Mm. It doesn't exist as a solid thing. Right? So in the quantum world, as an observer, we collapse the wave function is what it's known as. So when we observe something, we bring it from the world of the formless into form based on the way we expect it to look we collapse the wave function and we see it as matter. So we bring everything into existence through our Absolutely. observation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now that leads to a very interesting question, right? Right? Are we creating the world in front of us? Or does the world exist as it is? Yeah? I've spoken to quantum physicists about this. And quantum physicists will say, okay, 
the observer effect, because that's what it's called, works at the subatomic level, mm. at the microscopic level. Now, this is at a very, very small level. To give you an idea of how small, if we took a strand of hair, we can't take a strand of our hair, I'm afraid, my friend, but if we Might got some well. <laughs> nice big uh, long hair, we took a strand of it, and we looked at the width of this hair, it's incredibly thin, mm. right? You would fit 100 million no, sorry, one million, sorry, one million carbon atoms across the width of this hair. Mm. That's how small it is. Mm. So I've had quantum physicists say to me, ah, yes, but the observer effect, you see, only works at the microscopic level, not at the macroscopic level, mm. to which my answer is maybe, just maybe, we're not that good at observing. And maybe people like Mohammed, maybe people like Jesus, maybe people like Lao Tzu are much better at observing and so create this change immediately. Mm. To which the quantum physicist went, maybe, but yeah. that's off the record. Yeah. So even in the quantum world, they're starting to debate whether we can actually affect it at the macroscopic level. In my experience with the work I've done, I would say 100% yes both in my life and in life. I've seen too many people create what you could claim to be a miracle in their life. You know, they've pulled themselves out of bankruptcy and made a million dollars the next year. They've changed their relationships in a blink of an eye. They've left their job, set up a business, and are doing exactly what they want to do around the world when they want to do it. I've seen so much stuff, health stuff, what spontaneous remissions of diseases, all sorts of stuff and you just start thinking yeah this shit really works miracles miracles is amazing miracles. yeah i call it real magic because uh, i like the term magic so i call it creating real magic in my world but but yeah miracles they're miracles you know but, the, but yeah. it's, it's it's quantum physics is exactly what it is it's no mystery if you if you can get yourself into a state where you're communicating with this quantum field of information you bring the new information back in it goes there you go hmm you already have everything you need. Look, you talk about miracles, right? If you cut your finger, who heals the finger? Yeah, it's yourself, essentially. Yeah, right. So, and you have no doubt that that cut, you get a paper cut on the top of your finger, yeah. it's painful for a couple of days, it might bleed a little bit, but after a couple of days, it's gone, yeah. right? You have no questions over your ability to heal that cut. So it happens. When things get a little bit bigger, a little bit more complex, we start to question them. And then what happens? We don't get better or they don't change. Yeah. But if we have that level of faith, of knowing, as I call it, yeah. so I take people through three stages usually. They have the stage of doubt. Yeah. I then take them through a suspension of disbelief into believing yeah. and then into knowing. Right? Yeah. When you have that level of knowing at this big macroscopic level, that's when you create miracles or real magic in your life. Mm -hmm. So for your doctor, I would take him from doubt. I would have him suspend disbelief, just like when he goes and watches Star Wars at the cinema. You believe that there are really lightsabers having that fight. You suspend disbelief to do it, otherwise you wouldn't enjoy it. right? You then go into that uh, belief. Okay, I believe this happens. But it's when you really know, when you really are, oh, I have no doubt whatsoever. Every fiber of my body screams that this works, that this is the way it, the way it happens. When you come from that place, that's when you create real magic. 
all through daily practice all through daily. daily deliberate practice yeah which you build into your see you you can't go from where you are now to an olympian level of commitment every single day you have to work at it you have to build it in so where someone like me comes along or any other coach that's worth their salt they'll look at someone's lifestyle and say okay how much time can we give a day at your current rate to give you deliberate practice it might be a minute it might be a two-minute meditation you don't have to go on youtube and put in two-minute mindfulness meditation and then sit with the headphones on for two minutes but if you can do it every single day, you create space. Right? When you start to create space, you start to change the way your brain works. Right? When you start to change the way your brain works, you start to change your external experience. Right? And it works, starts very subtly and very slowly, but it's that deliberate practice every single, single day. The worst thing you can do. See, I got a bit of advice years ago. I used to, um, I used to play the saxophone in a band. And uh, when I was taking a couple of saxophone lessons, the, the musician said to me, look, because he said, how, how much can you practice a day? And I went, oh, an hour, two hours a day. He went, whoa, 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 let me stop you there. Love your enthusiasm. <laughs> practice 10 to 15 minutes every single day. He said, because if you try and commit to an hour or two a day, you'll do two days, you'll stop for three, you'll do another one, you'll stop for a week. He said, do 10 to 15 minutes every day and do it every single day. He said, you'll get much better, much quicker. And that's true. It works in everything. Start slow, be deliberate, turn up every single day. Got a formula for your listeners there, right? This cool. is the formula that I give everyone. Right? Ingrain this on your mind, on your brain. Simplicity plus consistency equals success. Do simple things, do them consistently in the direction of your goals and keep doing them every single day. And eventually you'll succeed. It's simple. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's that it's changing that absolute belief. Absolutely, and that's where I normally start. So I normally take people out of their stressed environments. I get them to change their environment. You know, even tidying up your your living space or your office space, bringing in some flowers, changing the pictures on the wall, throwing up some different color paint. I don't care what it takes. Mm. Just change your environment. Get yourself out of the environment. Get out in nature. Get some fresh air put on the meditation for two minutes, change what you're doing, drive a different way to work, brush your teeth with your left hand, right? <laughs> if you get up in the morning and drink coffee first thing, drink a glass of water before you have it. Change what you do because when you start doing different things, your brain starts firing in different ways. <laughs> well, that's absolutely amazing. We've, we've taken up a lot of your time today and um, how can they get hold of you? What's the best way? Um, there's a couple of ways you can do it. You can uh, look at the website, paulwebcoaching.com. Uh, there is another website coming as well. I'm not sure exactly when that will be up, but that's the quantummentor.com. Cool. And I do a lot of work on Instagram under the name Paul Web Coaching. Excellent. It, it's been very fascinating. I think um, uh, delving into the, uh, the the metaphysical and the and the subconscious and the quantum fields and everything that was previously thought of being woo woo and unconventional is becoming a much more mainstream and definitely um, it's definitely mainstream in the coaching industry but um, yeah, hopefully well it will it, it will happen in in the conventional medical industry as well. Um, I like I to ask this question for all of my guests at the end. Um, what's the naughtiest thing you've ever done, Paul? <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> oh dear, where do you want to start? I'm a Battersea boy. Um, naughtiest thing I've ever done. That's the naughtiest thing I've ever done. Um, do you know one? I I uh, I used to love riding motorbikes. Yeah. I used to love riding really fast motorbikes. And uh, I had a Yamaha R1 once, and I was late coming back. I went I went on a Sunday ride out to Hastings. And I was late getting back, and um, this was a good few years ago now. And I, let's just say, I played loose and easy with the speed limit and leave it at that. But that was very hairy. That uh, must have been super magical. It was extremely magical, and I think I still got adrenaline rolling around my body some fifteen years after doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, yeah, um, I wasn't stopping for anyone, including the constabulary. <laughs> Excellent, Paul. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Surgical Spirit podcast. For all the latest in the world of Surgical Spirit, don't forget to follow on Twitter at The Third Eye Doc and catch me on Facebook at the page The Third Eye Doctor. You can visit the website at www.thethirdeyedoctor.co.uk for more information on the work that I do. And please send us feedback and questions and suggestions for the podcast. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. I've been Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, and I'll see you next time.